0: Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. And Linksys, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Josh. Hey, Bernard. How are you? I'm well. And how are you doing in Taiwan? I'm
1: doing well. The weather's getting warmer. I'd say we've probably had the hottest day today in a while, so cranking up the AC and uh, trying to survive the the crazy, crazy Taiwan heat.
0: Came earlier in Taiwan this year. Is that true? Uh,
1: you know what? I I, I wouldn't say so. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's been pretty average. But weather-wise, I guess the the most interesting situation for Taiwan is we're going through a drought. Actually, I'm not super up to date on the situation now, but a lot of cities in Taiwan had to undergo some water rations because uh, there's a shortage of rainfall, and Taiwan gets its water from rainfall. So, you know, if you lived in Taoyuan, which is about an hour from Taipei, then you know you had to cut back on your water consumption.
0: Wow. Okay. We are talking to Josh Horwitz, a writer of Quartz and also formerly from Tech in Asia, right? Yes, that's correct. When may you start covering technology in Asia? I
1: sort of fell into it, I guess. Uh, I started writing after spending about a year and a half in Taiwan studying Chinese. This was right after college. And I fell into a writing gig at The Next Web where I was fortunate enough to work with John Russell covering technology in Asia and then after a few months at The Next Web, I moved over to Tech in Asia where I was also fortunate to work with wonderful people like Terence and Stephen and Paul and then after a year and a half there, I moved over to Quartz and also very privileged to work with talented people there.
0: So why have you chosen to be in Taiwan?
1: Well, it really just came down to convenience. Uh, after graduating from college, I, I got a scholarship to come to Taiwan to study Mandarin under the Taiwanese uh, Ministry of Education—they're uh, very, very generous with their language study scholarships because, uh, as you can imagine, most foreigners when they do their language study, they're attracted to the mainland. And so Taiwan is trying to get more foreign students to come here. So, and uh, the Taiwan scholarship has sort of been passed down from uh, sort of year to year, student to student in my particular department, university. And so I picked that up after graduation and uh, just kind of stayed. And I, I really enjoy Taiwan. I like it a lot.
0: So, you do you write in traditional? Chinese characters, as compared to the simplified Chinese characters.
1: Well, writing is complicated. I, I I'd say I type in in I type in pinyin, and I should type in boku mofo, but I've I've still been too lazy to learn it, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, but yes, I, I read traditional and simplified, and I've found for my purposes that the language differences aren't you know aren't tremendous. I mean, obviously there's some grammar and word changes, and you know all sorts of quirky accents. But you know, Chinese is a rabbit hole, and you kind of go down the Taiwan rabbit hole and do your best to adapt to the Beijing rabbit hole
0: or the Sichuan rabbit hole. Mm, I now the reason why I brought it up is because in Southeast Asia, Taiwan, we used to be with traditional characters and then subsequently Singapore actually went into simplified Chinese when they yeah. go into characters and then now just for audience to know a little bit more about Chinese is actually have different variations across Asia itself. Uh-huh. Well, I'm, I'm curious, what year did Singapore switch over? It was sometime when we decided that Chinese became the second language. So we okay. switched over from traditional Chinese to simplified Chinese. I actually learned calligraphy when I was younger. Okay. So I, I started with Chinese calligraphy before I actually learned how to hold a pen in to write English. Uh-huh. So that uh-huh. makes my pen holding style very different from the usual because I wrote in traditional Chinese first. Right, right. Yeah. I,
1: I had no idea that Bernard Long, in addition to being a, a, a tech wizard of Singapore, was also a master calligrapher.
0: Oh, I did got myself some training, and I, um, so actually it goes in stages, so you, you could hold what is called a xiao kai, which is the smallest pen, and uh-huh. your level grows as the pen size grows too. So I actually reached the mid-stage of the pen use before uh-huh. I actually transfer into writing English. And that was a big, difficult transition for me. At wow! The same time.
1: My God, I that's I, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine like starting off with
0: calligraphy before English. That's sort of yeah. impressive. which which actually made me admire a lot of traditional Chinese characters because it has a lot of flair and a lot of ways of thinking about it. But before we continue this whole Chinese discussion, I want to basically talk to you about Uber, Uber in okay. Asia specifically uber in asia all right why don't you tell everyone what uber is okay well i'm assuming most of our
1: listeners are probably familiar with uber but we'll go into it anyways i think that the best way to understand uber is uber is a transportation network company Uh, meaning that uber is a company that provides value to people by connecting drivers people with cars with passengers people that want Rides uh, that you know, at any given moment, want to get a car, want to get in a car to take them from A to B, and Uber will earn money by connecting these passengers and drivers in ways that are more efficient than any other company. Certainly, more efficient than the old method, which is when you and I went out to the street and we waved our hands around like idiots and hoped that the taxi would drive bias. So Uber has several service tiers and they kind of vary from market to market and often the names kind of change market to market and they don't always match up but uh, they have a high-end tier that's almost always referred to as Uber Black and the high-end tier is sort of their flagship product. It's their first product in San Francisco, it's usually the first service tier they roll out in their markets and that tier usually has a, a professional chauffeur, usually someone who has a proper license from the government or perhaps a a, some sort of uh, company that owns cars or or dispatches chauffeurs and they drive high-end vehicles and the price is usually 1.5 times the market rate for a taxi then occasionally uber will also have taxi tiers where it just kind of hands out its app and it connects to ordinary yellow cab or in singapore's case red cab taxi drivers and then the fastest growing tier and the most controversial tier is usually known as uber x and that tier is when ordinary people like you and me get in their ordinary cars and they take other ordinary people and drive them around the city for cash. And that's the model that's been attracting all sorts of controversy in the United States. Uh, it's also been attracting all sorts of controversy in Asia. Uh, it's the one that I think uh, that everyone is, is, when they watch Uber and when they think of, you know, they think of Uber, that's increasingly the tier that, that they're thinking of.
0: I also have to add is that Uber was founded by two founders, uh, Travis Kalanick and Garrett Kemp and has raised about US five point nine billion in ten rounds with forty three investors. I think the valuation is somewhere in forty five billion, right? Uh I'm not sure on the exact valuation. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think they have a lot of very famous investors. Well, I would just name a few Google Ventures, Benchmark, Goldman Sachs even Jeff Bezos, Kleiner Perkins, Alfred Lin from Sequoia, apparently in his angel capacity, and Chris Saka, who is also an investor of Twitter. So one of the things I saw, always been very curious, they have rapidly expanded in Asia. How do they go into cities then?
1: Well, that's a good question. I guess from what we've observed when they go into cities, they really just kinda, they just do it. Typically what they do is they have dedicated staff members that are known as launchers, and they'll go from city to city, all over the world, all over Asia. And these launchers, are they'll just kind of get started. They'll, they'll usually reach out to limo companies first. Since, since Uber usually launches with Uber Black, that sort of high-end chauffeur limo tier, usually what they do when they want to establish themselves in a the city is they, they reach out directly to those chauffeur limo companies. They do that by calling them up. They say, hey, we're a company. We offer this new service where... If your drivers have idle time, they want to make extra cash, they can log on to Uber and they can start ferrying passengers uh, all around the city. Usually the limo companies, are, you know, from talking to drivers and talking to Uber, sometimes these limo companies will be a little reluctant to join Uber. But it's usually a win-win situation because it's a way for these drivers, and in some cases the limo companies, depending on, on who has access to the, the pot of money, who has access to the take, uh, it's a way for these drivers to make extra money. You know, these limo drivers have idle time. You know, often they're ferrying passengers to and from the airport, they've got kind of a set, you know, set group of business customers. And so it makes sense for them in their free moments to pick up guys like you and me when we just need a ride to, I don't know, you know, pick up our daughters or, or go see our loved ones in another part of town. So that's usually the first step, and sometimes that attracts a little controversy from yeah. local authorities. But then the next step is is once they're Uh, once they have those relationships with those existing limo companies, they'll usually try and roll out UberX. Uh, Again, from what I've noticed just from talking to drivers and just from watching these rollouts closely, is that usually they'll they'll go from Uber Black to UberX, and UberX will usually be priced slightly lower than a taxi. They'll roll out UberX not immediately in the peer-to-peer form, but they'll usually try and find some of these professional drivers to drive Less fancy cars. Uh, they usually get maybe, maybe these less fancy cars are their personal vehicles. Maybe they're also owned by the limo companies, but it's essentially these licensed professional chauffeur drivers in sort of mid-tier cars. And then, whenever Uber decides that there's enough visibility, they're seeing enough growth in Uber Black or Uber X, then they'll open up Uber X to everyone. And so the company internally will refer to Uber uh, X in two ways. They'll call it Uber X Premium. Which is the chauffeur drivers in less fancy cars, and then they'll roll out what's known as peer to peer UberX, which is average Joes and average cars driving around ordinary people in the city. So, you know, the short answer to your question is they usually just go for it. There's not really much attention paid to local. Con- I mean, other than other than you know, localizing the app in English, uh, they kind of just uh, you know pound pavement and get right to it.
0: Mm. Actually, interesting. I actually managed to speak to someone who used to work for Uber. And they all usually start with a, what the launches is, is actually a team of three, a general manager, an operations manager, and a marketing manager. Uh-huh. And one of the things they did do is they usually try to sit their promo codes with the tech community. In uh-huh. fact, when they launched in Singapore, they actually started with the tech community who uh-huh. know about Uber from San Francisco. So it was very easy for us to start promoting internally. In fact, I think I, I rocked up about a hundred dollars of credits. <laughs> Uh-huh. Just by recommending it to everybody So it was very, because the person who started it was a pretty well-known uh, celebrity in the social media So it was very very easy to actually move on it, that That was how they actually do it
1: Yeah, they they, they do a, a tremendous job with, with marketing When they came to Taipei and they had their sort of uh, opening party They invited everyone that they could reach out to in Taipei's startup crew They figured that these are the early adopters these guys have an active presence on social media, and so they're an easy sort of from the passenger side. They're an easy group of people to target. Uh, they'll spread the word. They're also very, very aggressive on their initial launches with their media campaigns, and they reach out to lots and lots of local media to try and get to try and get nice pieces written about them. Oh, check out this cool company! You can ride in a Mercedes. And the deeper implications of the business model and, and what Uber brings to cities isn't immediately apparent to. You know, the average person that doesn't read TechCrunch. I think it's very, very deliberate that they want to enter the market with most people thinking that what they do is they hook people up with rides in Mercedes. And it's only after after a year or so that you know the, the real implications of Uber become apparent.
0: So does Uber actually localize and adapts its services in Asia countries? I mean, you gave a very good example in a couple of articles, one of them talking about India accepting Cash payments.
1: Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So Uber, I think, from people that write about Asia, write about tech in Asia, they've Uber has actually done a tremendous job doing both. On the one hand, they don't localize at all, and on the other hand, they have made some very very bold changes for Uber, considering that Uber has these principles that it, it tends to not really it, it tends to stick by. What I mean is that almost in every in almost every market, Uber at its outset sticks to credit card payments. Uh, And that as you know is a a risky bet in Asia uh, particularly in Southeast Asia emerging markets where credit card penetration is very low. But one of the reasons for that is because I think that Uber firmly believes that cashless payments are without question a Superior user experience. If you think about this from Apple's perspective, or you know, from an Apple-esque perspective, and once you take an Uber, it becomes very apparent that fumbling with cash is an annoyance, and Uber wants to be wants to provide a, a premium experience, and that means putting cash payments on the back burner. That allowing for cash payments is not a priority. That said, in India, and in I think it's just a few cities right now, they've begun experimenting with cash payments. One of the reasons, or one of the obvious advantages of, of cash payments in, marketing, in markets like India, is that you can. Access those people that don't have credit cards, uh, and the stakes are high in markets like India or certain countries in Southeast Asia, where competitors like Grab Taxi or Ola Cab or Taxi for Sure have achieved a certain degree of ubiquity by allowing for cash payments. Does Uber localize? Yes, they do, and, and yes, they don't. Another example is in China; they've they've integrated with Alipay, which is sort of the leading third-party payment software in China. Uh, that's kind of a must in China, and that's a good example of them localizing. But in Southeast Asia, you know, where Grab Taxi, uh, their competitor, has a pretty significant presence, they still they still haven't opened up cash payments. And you know, I think that from their perspective, they they weigh the cost and benefits benefits of accessing the market versus providing a degree of loyalty and keeping the brands the you know, not tarnishing the brand image, which to Uber is very important. And then they decide when it makes sense to open up or not.
0: What are the kind of challenges other than payments that Uber face in Asia?
1: Well I think uh, one that's not really discussed enough, or I would love to I would love to see more people that are that have a good hold on urban transport in Asia is Uh, The abundance of taxis and also the general level of service of those taxis. So what I mean is, in most of Uber's markets in the United States, taxis are very scarce. The market is generally underserved. Uh, There's a statistic that Travis Kalanick loves to use when he's talking about New York. I think that there's something like 13,000 New York City cabs and that number hasn't changed in the past 50 years even as the population has uh, exploded. Uh, but that's not the case for a lot of cities in Asia. Uh, in Taipei, for example, it's very, very obvious once you once you hear that. I mean, taxis are just everywhere. You literally, no matter where you are. Well, not not anywhere in Taipei, but in most parts of Taipei, you can literally go out on the street and you can wave your hand, and then a taxi will a taxi will approach you in one minute, two minutes. And also, I'd say that in Taipei, the level of service is pretty good for taxis. There's actually one company that the public is very aware about. It's, it's sort of a brand. It's called Taiwan Da Due, or also known as 56688. And uh, the drivers, they wear nice clothes, and they're generally forbidden to smoke or chew binglang. and you know, the, the cars are comfortable. The AC is always on in the summer. And it's not uncommon for people in Taipei to call up I want and hail a cab, but it's kind of a it's kind of a known practice here, so Taipei is a market where the incumbent taxi industry already already meets a certain standard in terms of abundance and in terms of service level and so the value add for a company like Uber is less than what it might be in a city like New York City or less than what it might be in a city like Beijing, where taxis are scarce where the drivers, you know, are, they smell like cigarettes and they're rude. So uh, Taipei is a good example of a market in Asia that's not an immediate fit for Uber. And another example is Japan, where service level is pretty good, taxes are pretty abundant. And as someone who likes to take Uber and also likes to take cabs around the city, I'm, I'm not married to public transportation. There have been times when I've opened Uber because I've wanted to take an Uber, and I've seen that it says, you know, six-minute wait, and I say, you know what, I'd rather just wave my hand and get a cab in the next 30 seconds so i think that those are those are real challenges for uber bangkok might be another market where there's an abundance of cab uber is not immediate.
0: let's talk about uber's controversies in asia maybe you can tell me how many countries have banned uber and there are varying reasons for them doing so so maybe we can talk a little bit about that Sure.
1: Well, you know, what, Bernard, I, I think there was a point when I was following Uber that, I, that, that there was a point in time when I was following Uber and I was really trying to keep track of which companies uh, <laughs> quote, quote, banned Uber. But as I follow the company more, you know, what? I don't think that these, ban- that these so-called bans, first of all, they're not really bans. And the reason why is because Uber, what, what, what does it mean to be banned? You know, mm. What does it mean to be called illegal versus actually illegal? You'll notice that in, in most of its markets, not all of its markets, but in most of its markets, if if some sort of, if some bureaucrat, if some municipal department of transportation of the city of Taipei bureaucrat says Uber is illegal, well, what authority does this person have to say Uber is illegal or to ban Uber, right? I mean, this person will get in the paper, but, but Uber, you know, to say that Uber is illegal, we'd first have to look at the law. The first argument, the, the reality is that most of these cities in Asia and also outside of Asia is that Uber occupies a legal gray area. There hasn't really been a legal framework for a company like Uber, a, a transportation network company that owns no, no capital in the form of cars. All they do is they own the the software that connects cars with drivers. When these company, when Bangkok, often often you'll you'll read articles in domestic media of cities saying we have banned Uber, and there's been a recent wave of that in Beijing or Chinese cities. But I don't I don't think those bans are actually. I think they're they're worth following, but in terms of they don't always have an impact on Uber's operations. Uber will often fight. If if we look at what's been, what's going on in Paris, I mean, various municipal and state organizations in France have been calling Uber illegal, but they've and they've taken it to some of the highest courts, but they keep appealing. So to, to answer your question, which, which cities have banned Uber in Asia, I, I, I couldn't tell you. Mm, uh, I
0: mean, even for the India case, I mean, due to the rape case, actually, I think it's only Delhi, but the other parts of India are still running Uber anyway.
1: Yeah, and, and Uber, Uber. so the so Delhi is very interesting. There was sort of a, a crisis, a, a PR crisis and then a real crisis, where a woman claimed that her Uber driver raped her. And she later went on to sue the company, company in San Francisco. After after news of this alleged rape uh, hit the media, it, it hit it big in India, it hit it, it, hit it big in the, the global media, Uber shut down its operations in Delhi. And that's very, very rare for Uber. And so I think that, uh, but a, a few weeks later, they were back up and running. Uh, and so I, th- I sensed that shutting it down was sort of just a, a way to show respect for this terrible, unfortunate incident. In in most Asian cities, when Uber is declared illegal or banned illegal, they'll just kind of keep running and then you know who knows what's going on behind the scenes they're negotiating with regulators they're negotiating with their lawyers other lawyers they have a policy team that that runs around shaking hands with all sorts of government officials and bureaucrats now the one city where uber has really kind of hit the wall is Seoul. um i'm working on researching the reasons for why uh, it, it's not immediately clear but uber uber x was banned very very swiftly i'd say for i think it was maybe it was not long after it's launched that the government, that that various government bodies said that Uber was illegal. And at one point, there was a, uh, I think Travis Kalanick was uh, was being called sold. to court. I think. Yeah, 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 he was called to court, and they put out a warrant for his arrest. And there were nine hundred dollar bounties on, on Uber drivers. You know, the, these these reports of indictments and uh, and bounties kind of went out. For months at a time. And then finally, I think it was maybe March of this year, Uber released a statement saying, you know what, UberX is no longer in Seoul. And that's very, very rare. Um, So it's not immediately clear yet why Uber, you know, why Seoul didn't work, but, you know, in Paris, it's still fighting it all the way up to the top. Or why in China, for example, you know, it's still fighting its way to the top. I'm not sure, but uh, hopefully we'll know soon.
0: So I basically left China to the end. I hear from your. Ex colleague Charlie, from when we were talking about WeChat, he thinks you have a more bullish view on Uber. So, well... wait, wait, wait. So, the question for me is how can they really survive given that Tencent and Alibaba has already backed the other big two companies into a merger, which I think is quite the end. Didi Darcher, and I think they have something that's like about ninety percent market share.
1: Yeah, and gosh, ninety percent of the market share. What what does market share really mean? Let's define market share. I think
0: that's okay, Can, up- I take your point because Apple has less market share, but it's making ninety three percent of the smartphone profits in the world.
1: Right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're, you know we're not really. We'll have to think deeply about how to you know what market share means for you know, the transportation network industry, and also I think I, I'm personally you know as I'm personally kind of skeptical about about, well, not that they own 90% of the market, but what does market share mean specifically in this case? No, no the companies that have done the research haven't really, haven't really elaborated. Anyways, I'll say that the bull case for Uber in China, I, I think one of the reasons, and, and, and at the risk of sounding like a total Uber fanboy, I think one of the uh, one of the bull cases is just that Uber is Uber. They've proven that they've been incredibly resilient almost every market that they've been in, and they, they simply, they just fight their way to the top. They don't back down, and I think it's because they know that from a market a market perspective, you know, a market economic perspective, they're in the right. Uh, in markets where taxis are scarce, they are opening up the market and they're doing it in a way that's efficient, You know, they're, they're bringing technology that is, is not really going to go away and so it, it's really, really difficult for regulators to turn that down. And, and they know this and so that's why they're willing to fight regardless of the market. Another bull case for Uber in China is, is they're you know, backing from Baidu. Uh, I think that that definitely gives them legal cushioning. It gives them, no one knows where the, if this money is going directly towards Uber or if it's more of a, a financial investment, but I think that it gives them extra credibility domestically. Also, I think that the long, there's interesting potential long-term implications. There were rumors that Uber and Baidu were uh, working together to bid for Nokia here. Right, And then when you also consider that Baidu is working on building its own autonomous cars and, and or autonomous uh, self-driving cars, and Uber is doing the same. You know, there's interesting potential for collaboration there. That's all sort of long-term view, but I think that a ba- backing from Baidu is nothing to, is nothing to scoff at. I think another thing that's worth paying attention to is that you know Uber doesn't have to be number one in China. Ride sharing is going to be a city by city game. We're even seeing that in the United States, where in certain markets of like California, Lyft is a real serious competitor to Uber. Uh, in most other cities, Uber is Uber is number one. When you look at the legacy of of Dacha and how they built the market, they built it off of cabs. Building out a, a, a network of people drivers versus cab drivers is a little different. And so Uber might do that more successfully in Chengdu and... Kuwaiti Didi might do that more successfully in Yunnan. That's not a city, but you know what I mean, in Kunming. I think that, uh, don't get me wrong, I think that Uber definitely has an uphill battle in China. It's true that the foreign the foreign passport is in some ways a disadvantage for them, but so far you know, we haven't really seen them be the punching bag, It'd be a punching bag from authorities in any way that's particularly different from what Qidi Didi has suffered. Both companies are still getting bullied by local authorities. Driver Taxi drivers are still protesting that municipal authorities and state authorities are still kind of wrestling with how to... How to address ride sharing? Now, Charlie in his piece, Charlie in his piece said some certain, several things that, that I found were interesting that I'll use to kind of give counter arguments to. One was that uh, several local authorities and even I think the Ministry of Transport said something like, "There will never ever be ride sharing or peer to peer ride sharing will never ever be legal in China." But again, you have to realize that no matter who these government these government people are, you, these these officials, they, they kind of have to toe the party line. It takes a lot. It, what they say to the public is. not always necessarily representative of what they're saying to their colleagues behind the scene. When you talk about government, and, and Paul Moser kind of mentioned this and uh, touched on this in his piece last week, you know, for every government official that might be in bed with the taxi organization, there's also probably a government official that's in bed with you know, internet entrepreneurs or you know, people that, you know, for whatever political reason, would side with the ride-sharing firms. And even though there's no direct democracy in China, you know, local officials will always find ways to win favor among the public and their colleagues in order to get promotion. One of the ways to do that might be, you know, if if a particular official feels that you know the public is really, really, you know, if he he wants to put his city on the map and and open up to ride sharing, be the city that makes it provide some sort of framework for ride sharing, then uh, and that will give him some publicity and maybe boost his chances for promotion. Then that's that's an option. I don't necessarily see. I don't see China's government as something that's going to that that's going to be hostile to ride sharing in ways that's that's particularly different from governments in other countries. Now, that said, and one point that Charlie made that, that I do agree with is that when it comes to uh, making this data available, it's possible that, that Uber will have the lower hand and, and QADI-DD will have the upper hand. If the government, for whatever reason, decides that it wants a certain degree of access to the data that, that these companies are collecting, uh, and they're collecting lots and lots of data about where you are at any given moment, where I am at any given moment, where I'm going, where drivers are going, who's paying for what, the government will probably want certain access to this data, and there's no doubt in my mind that Quadee and DD will hand over that data. There's also no doubt in my mind that Uber will hand over that data. But I think if the government does decide that you know it's going to build some sort of it's going to build some sort of platform, it's going to build some sort of some sort of system where it takes data and then gives benefit, decides that that. In, 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 uh, this is all getting very, very amorphous, uh, and I think it's because no one really, no one really knows what will happen. But you know, I do think it's possible that if the government decides to work more deeply with these companies, that D might get the upper hand, and Uber might get left
0: out. I, thought I should add that you know, of the so-called BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, Baidu is the weakest of the three. So well, in terms of market capitalization, and also uh, the, and also given that you know how many Western companies are actually successful in China so far, I think only Apple is successful.
1: Right. Yeah, I would agree, but but again, you know, I think that mm. let's let's look at this on a case by case basis. Mm. I think that again, you don't have to be the number one player. You know, I mean, like Uber is in nine cities. What if it stays in nine cities? You know, what if Uber says, "Oh, we're profitable," or like you know, if things are working out in these nine cities, we don't want to go further. I'm not saying that they will, but I'm just saying that there's. I think that Uber will. You know, Uber is the Chinese government is very smart, but Uber is also very smart. I think that Uber will kind of take calculated steps to do what's best for it. It would do what's best for its business in China. As for the market capitalization of these firms, I'm not so sure. I think that.
0: Uh, well, I was hoping for a three kingdom situation where each one backed each one of them, but then in the end, Kwai D and Didi decided to join together. So, you know. So, yeah,
1: I, I think that so. So it's now
0: a two sided, it's just a two sided war, basically. Yeah, I mean. yeah, it's a two-sided war. I mean, I think that the real
1: advantage from from that backing is, in addition to to you know whatever legal cushion or you know sort of China stamp cushion it gives, it gives Uber. I think uh, the advantage to getting backing from a company like Tencent is that your app can be integrated into into WeChat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so all of a sudden, you know, these these subsidies or these discounts or rides or promotions are on you know the hottest social network in China. But again, Uber Uber isn't at a complete disadvantage in China because. You know, Baidu is search. And if I, much like how in the US, if I search McDonald's in Google, I can, in some cities, I can press a button and then get an Uber to McDonald's. Uh, Baidu could very well do the same in China. So again, WeChat, WeChat is probably the better place to be, but Baidu is not necessarily a bad place to be.
0: Mm, that's true. But I mean, they also have other competitors in Asia, right? I mean, in Southeast Asia, they have GrabTaxi. Yes. And then they have other countries such as Hong Kong, Indonesia, Taiwan, they have, you know, Easy Taxi, but I heard that Easy Taxi is getting clobbered. And then yeah. they are also entering into logistics which take them against GoGo Van in Hong Kong and all our caps in India. So how yeah. do you see Uber shaping up against these competitors?
1: I think it, it it's it's a question. I, I I wouldn't say that I'm a bull or a bear on, on either one, but I think the important thing to note, and this sort of applies to China and Didi as well is that we're sort of seeing two two very very different theses emerge for ride sharing, which is here to stay. It's only going to get bigger. One thesis is Uber thesis, which which or let's start with the, the competitors. One thesis is the the Grab taxi and the Ola thesis, which is you know in order to popularize ride sharing, we need to start it, it, or in order to create you know, free market model private transportation, we need to start with what people know and what people can readily access, which is uh, a market of taxis, people are already familiar with this habit, cash payments, anyone can do that, and then and then growing the market off off of that base. The Uber thesis is, we don't like taxis, they're inferior, they smell, they're eventually gonna go, right? They're, uh, you know, Uber's thesis is that every taxi driver should eventually just become an Uber driver, or every taxi driver will eventually, should eventually go solo you know, go freelance under a transportation network company. So why would we partner with taxi? And also, I think that Uber is very brand conscious in ways that Grab, Taxi, and Ola aren't necessarily. You know, it's 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 very obvious in Uber's marketing the way that they start with this high-end Uber block model, right down to the attire that they'll wear at their at their events. Uh, the brand that they, that they promote is this sort of high-end premium service even when often it's cheaper than a taxi. There's these two competing theses and I think that we're seeing that one will definitely you know the, the starting with taxis will definitely exp- help you get expand the market much much quicker. Ola has, is in more Indian cities than Uber is and Grab Taxi, speaking anecdotally and, and, and just from the companies they have a bigger presence they probably have more cars on the road than Uber does and then the same definitely goes to QIDB in China. But it's not yet clear if Uber has started ride-sharing earlier. And so it's not yet clear which which thesis is going to win out.
0: Well, there's, there's another option. I mean, Uber has raised so much money, they can acquire one of these players too, right?
1: They can, but I
0: don't think they will. I think that
1: it's possible they might acquire a few of the ride-sharing companies in China. There's several. ones called called Pincha, Another is called... I think it's like Hopincha, and they've all raised about 10 million, 15 million dollars, uh, often from Baidu. They, you know, those signs make me think it's possible that they'll, they'll acquire those companies. In general, Uber has not, Uber has never, ever, ever acquired a taxi, a, a, another transportation network company. Um, they've acquired a mapping company. To assume that Uber is going to acquire another transportation network company, generally speaking, I think is a is a misunderstanding of what Uber, what kind of company Uber is. Uber will repeatedly say it is a technology company. So that means if Uber is going to acquire other companies, they'll acquire other companies that can offer better technology. This market in general is very low barrier to entry, though. All you really need to do in order to gain market in order to gain market shares is just get your Get your launchers and get your employees and get your drivers to just pound the pavement and promote Uber. You need to put windshields flyers on windshield wipers. You need to offer discounts on Facebook and on WeChat. You need to get passengers. It's ops. You know you need to convince people to get on Uber. I don't think that Uber is going. That acquiring. A taxi network is, is necessarily going to be a, a value add for Uber when ultimately their goal is just to get drivers to join uh, to, to ditch their taxi. And we haven't seen any acquisitions like this yet. I don't think that we will in the future. And that's what made that's what made the the Ola acquisition of taxi for sure so interesting. You know, I think that you know, if Uber set a precedent, it was going to be that, that like Uber could have bought Sidecar, they could have bought Get Taxi in New York City, which kind of had its day there. Could have bought Halo, which had its had its. Heyday in London, but they they haven't done that. Other than China, where you know the stakes might be a little higher, and you've got these these four or five startups that have backing from Baidu, it might make sense to acquire the network. But I sense that in other markets, they're going to be content to just kind of give these very very generous subsidies. Remember, a lot of these markets are price sensitive. They've got customers that you know that extra five R and D or that extra you know those extra rupees. They mean something, uh, and so I think that Uber would rather ring customers that way than by buying a network of, of, of drivers and passengers.
0: Hmm. Okay, that probably sums up all our conversation on Uber, but I'm sure I'm gonna get you back at some point to see whether, you know, whether it's Charlie's argument or your argument played out, because I think it's still a very complex play for all these taxi apps in Asia. So, yeah. well, maybe I just come back to your home ground, Taiwan, startup yeah. ecosystem. I mean, I just started. want to get a sense: what is the Taiwanese government doing recently to help startups? I think the,
1: the state of the startups in Taiwan is really interesting, and I think it's very exciting. I think that in August of 2014, the government passed an initiative called Head Start Taiwan, uh, and a lot of the initiatives in Head Start Taiwan are modeled after what the Singapore government has been doing over the past 10 years or so. And so, there's sort of uh, three parts to this plan that I'll, I'll explain them very broadly. One is a, a Sort of matching scheme where the Taiwanese government will, will commit an investment of a certain amount of money in venture capital firms, ideally ones that are outside of Taiwan. And there's no strings attached in this in these in these investments. However, you know, there's sort of uh, invisible forces at play, and hopefully, these companies, these venture capital firms will look to Taiwan for future investments, depending on the profits generated. The Taiwanese government might you know, might take a little, or they might not. Uh, but so that's that's one part, just to stimulate the injection of foreign capital into Taiwanese companies. The second part is lowering the restrictions on foreign, legal foreign talent in Taiwan. This is again modeled after Singapore. There used to be some very cumbersome restrictions to starting a business or working as a foreign employee in Taiwan. Uh, but those barriers have been lowered. Be, Taiwan will be introducing a special entrepreneur visa. Specific requirements haven't really been announced yet, but they should, we should be hearing them any minute. And the barriers for registering your, registering your startup as a, as a in Taiwan's Taiwanese company are also very low. Uh, I think the amount of capital that you need is about 60,000 US dollars, that's not a lot at all. Uh, or you need to prove that you have won some sort of contest. Uh, you need to have gone through an accelerator program. The, the third part of this plan is is that the government has begun building, or, or not building, but renovating a, a space, a sort of dedicated space for startups to uh, work, have co-working spaces, hold meetings, and just kind of generally do the all the sort of mingling that startups like to do. So I, I think it's worth noting that these are you know, a lot of what makes these initiatives powerful is the personalities that got them passed. In particular, Head Start Taiwan was uh, one of the pet projects by a legislator with an academic background who's uh, since resigned. His name is Minister Zhongming. He was known as a very charismatic legislator and really, really won a lot of support in the startup community. Uh, he's one of those legislators that you'll you'll read about in local media for something goofy that he said or something just like really, really awesome that he said. So when he gets things like this done, it, it, it means something. There's a personality element behind and then likewise with the Taiwan startup stadium, that dedicated space. The woman who's running it, her name is Anita Huang, and uh, Anita has a lot of credibility as a uh, in the internet industry. She was one of the earliest employees at Yahoo Taiwan, which in many ways is is the ultimate Taiwan startup. After spending years at Yahoo Taiwan, she uh, moved over to Yoku Tudo. You know, in, as, as you know, Bernard, in a lot of startup communities, a lot of the people that wave the flag are kind of you know, they themselves might have not might not have much entrepreneurial experience and so these, this personality credibility, you know, it's intangible, it's not necessarily measurable, but it, it means something.
0: No, I think it means a lot because that means that the system is actually starting to um, regenerate itself as kind of the pay it forward culture is happening in its own way and I think even for Singapore it takes a considerable amount of time as well to get to its present stage yeah. So, what are the kind of interesting startups in Taiwan? I know you covered iChef and Team Plus, but I also wanted to mention GoGoRo, which because it's the Tesla for motorcycles.
1: GoGoRo, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think GoGoRo is really interesting, and it's also interesting because there's a, there's a direct comp- competitor that's coming out of China, but GoGoRo has this HTC legacy, so you know that that'll be a, definitely be a really interesting company to watch. But one that's worth watching is called KK Box. and uh, KK Box is actually one of the older startups in Taiwan, and they. I think maybe back in august they got a, a really big investment from oh you're gonna have to help me here burn out it's not temasek but it's gic
0: okay gic which is the government investment corporation of singapore
1: yes yes they, they got a really big run from from gic and uh kkbox is a is a lot like spotify they were it actually originated as a browser and then they gradually morphed into offering music streaming. oh well, music streaming and uh, they're definitely a company to watch because they, they've been very, very successful in Taiwan. But you know, obviously, there's going to be stiff competition from Spotify. And I think that you know, there's uh, there's increasingly more and more ways that we're listening to music. There, there's we, we might listen to it on our TVs. You know, these are problems that I think KKBOX is really going to have to think deeply about licensing agreements. I think one of their advantages is is they have these long-lasting relationships with long-tail music distributors, record labels in Asia. And that's something that Spotify hasn't really accessed yet. And if you talk to people that are familiar with KKBox, or have roots in the music industry in Asia, they'll they'll say that you know that's a really big advantage, is that KKBox has access to the long tail. So I think that what makes KKBox really interesting, that, and I think they're kind of symbolic of a lot of other interesting companies in Asia, which is, you know, if you look at media streaming, more and more people are going to be listening to music on their phones, consuming media on their phone. But there's this enormous long tail. Whether or not companies like Google or, or Spotify how are they going to access this long tail? How important is that long tail? You know, so I think KK Box is at the forefront, forefront of that, the same way that, for example, Oakby. I know there's a startup that gets talked a lot about in Southeast Asia. They have access to that long tail for books in Thailand. You know, KK Box has that same access in Taiwan. In Taiwan.
0: Hmm. So I just want to have one last question. Katrin Shu from TechCrunch told me that Taiwan is better for hardware startups than software startups. Is uh-huh. that true? Ah,
1: that's interesting. I think that there's two types of startups. if you if if you want to start a company abroad, you know let's say you're an entrepreneur and you're thinking about being a beachside nomad or you're considering your options outside of Silicon Valley or your hometown, I think that Taipei is a good place for two types of startups. Uh, one is a startup where you can rely solely on the internet for distribution. One example of that is there's someone I know who's building a software. It's kind of like Adobe Illustrator, but for browsers, right? Uh, so, this is something that can be distributed almost exclusively online. You know, you fire up Facebook, you fire up Twitter, you reach out to designers on, on all sorts of designer marketplaces. You say, hey, can you try out my app? And Taipei is a great place for that type of startup. And the reason for that is because, much like there's this kind of sexy notion, this cool notion of building a startup on a beach in Bali or in Cebu. Uh, do they have beaches in Cebu? To- totally.
0: Yes, there s- is. There s- is. is.
1: Okay, uh, I-, I should visit sometime. So, you know, much like there's this kind of cool notion of this digital nomad who sits on the beach and drinks margaritas and, and, and builds a software startup if you like cities then Taipei is without a question an excellent place to be I think that compared to other cities in Asia you know certainly Beijing Shanghai or any other Chinese city uh, the quality of life is better uh, people are you know all of the headaches that that you get in, in mainland China as, as wonderful as it is uh, you, you know they're they're mu- they're not present in Taipei Taipei, the way they are over there. Cost of living in Taipei is much lower than Seoul, much lower than Japan, much lower than Singapore. Uh, so if you like, and, and you can really find a middle ground price-wise uh, and in terms of quality of life. So I think if you want to be a digital nomad but you're a city guy and you like you, know, you like your cafes, you like that urban lifestyle, then Taipei is a is an excellent excellent option. You know, I, I can't think of a better place to be in, in at least in East Asia, in, at least in East Asia for that. Presuming that mm-hmm. your startup is something you can you can distribute on the internet. Hardware startups are, are also a good place to, you know, that that that's a good uh, a good vertical to be in if you're if you're in Taipei and I think that Taipei is in many ways overlooked. Shenzhen is is often often cited as the place to be for for hardware, but uh, there's a few startups that I think are good poster boys for for Well, first of all, you know, Nest has offices here and uh, or I don't know if they have offices, but they have teams that are here. And then uh, GoPro also has teams here and they've got you know, they're, they're some of the, the highest GoPro executives will fly back and forth from from California to Taiwan to uh, to manage their sourcing, and so I think that Taipei is really overlooked. And if you talk to if you talk to Adonit, which is a, a startup that has feet in the U.S. but also has feet in Taiwan for its sourcing and manufacturing, uh, they'll say that the OEMs here are are kind of small businesses. They're they're, they're family businesses, and they're all very densely. It's you know, very densely concentrated in certain parts of Taipei and in New the, the networks, the networks for, for sourcing and, and manufacturing here can you know, can be very uh, very dense, and you can you can find what you need very quickly through friends of friends of friends. Uh, not a lot of people realize that about Taiwan. I think what's lacking, though, on that front is that there's a lack of people that are visibly helping those startups. It's really just a matter of PR. There's a lack of people that are that are telling hardware startups in California, or the U.S., that Taiwan can suit their needs. Um, there's a lack of people that are talking to those OEMs and and, and, and telling them that these startups are are a good option for them to branch out and and find new clients. And there's a lack of people in the middle, not a complete lack. Uh, the, the Hardware Trek is a company that's been working on that and they actually just got four million in funding, which is very exciting. There's also a few sort of independent consultant types. Uh, there's one guy who's sort of been in perpetual stealth mode but is is very, very smart and very talented. so but there needs to be, I think there needs to be a little more a little more effort for outreach and PR in
0: terms of you know bringing all of these people together. I'm probably going to ask you to be back again, so tell my audience, how do they find you?
1: The best way to get in touch is probably through uh, my Gmail address which is jhorwitz111 at gmail.com. I also love Twitter. Uh, don't find me on Facebook, I promise that I won't answer you. Yeah, I guess that's, uh, that's probably the best way to get in touch.
0: Mm, okay, and you can definitely find me at C W or at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us at analyze.asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E dot You can listen to us through iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. Then the best place to listen to us is actually in Overcast. And of course, please do leave your ratings. One star to five star, we're all welcome. And do send us feedback. We want to know how to improve the show. So Josh, once again, thank you for coming on to Analyze Asia.
1: Bernard, thanks so much. The pleasure was mine.